We are concluding this morning our study in the book of Joel. Joel is probably the first of the so-called writing prophets. So this book provides a valuable insight into the history of prophecy, particularly as it furnishes a framework for the end times, which is faithfully followed by all subsequent scripture. God started a new work with the writing of Joel, that of preparing the human race for the end of this temporal era, and thus gave an outline of his total plan. Later prophets, including even our Lord, would only flesh out this outline, but in keeping with the divine nature of true scripture, never found it necessary to deviate from this, the initial revelation. And as we've gone through over the last four weeks, looking at these, we've seen that in chapter one, we see within the the text that we have, this real situation that Joel had faced, this incredible locust plague that had been so devastating. God uses that to speak through him of his plan and purpose. And chapter 1 seems to give us the birth of the nation, then the national apostasy that followed on from that, the rejection of their Messiah, the fact that ultimately Rome would come and that they would be forced to stop sacrificing. And then they would be dispersed around the world. But then one day there would come another world leader who would allow that sacrifice to begin again, only after three and a half years to then stop that sacrifice. We speak, of course, of the one we refer to as Antichrist. And chapter 1 really just gives us that very broad panoramic. And then as you go into chapter 2, it focuses in on that time of the end. And it seems to begin with this time that Revelation speaks of, of the, the trumpet judgments that are spoken of, uh, that are yet to come on this world. And, and of course, just as the locust invasion had been a real problem, so this judgment that's going to come on the world seems to speak of these demonic locust beings. They're going to be released. They're going to be absolutely terrifying. And that's going to happen. And we, we find that two-thirds of Israel are going to be destroyed during this time. You know, we, we think of the Holocaust and how horrible those things have been. And yet what Israel had to face still future is even worse. Jeremiah speaks of it as the time of Jacob's trouble. Of course, that leads on to then the abomination of desolation as Antichrist will then establish and set up a te- an image in the temple in Jerusalem, which of course means the temple has to be rebuilt. It's not there at the moment on the, the temple mount. Of course, we have the Dome of the Rock. But the Jews' temple will be rebuilt. I had the privilege back in 2007 of going to Israel and I got to have a briefing in the Temple Institute and got to see a, a, a number of the things they've made. They've got the table of showbread prepared the menorahs already, the incense altars already, the clothing for the priests already. You know, that was back in 2007. They are waiting now to rebuild their temple. And what will bring about the the change and allow that to happen, we don't know. There's a number of possibilities and there's all sorts of theories and scenarios. I mean, let's just sit tight because it's not going to be long. And Israel are going to rebuild that temple. They'll be allowed to start their sacrifices again. Because the last 2,000 years, Israel have not been able to offer sacrifices. According to the, the Torah, the law that they were under, that they would follow, they've not been able to do that. But the Bible says that there will come a time that they will be allowed to do that. This coming world leader who's going to be an incredibly charismatic person. I mean, he's going to use a lot of the things that we've been seeing going on over the last 18 months. Things like a track and trace system, because, you know, it makes a lot of sense if we know where you are, because we can let you know if you've been near somebody that's got this infection or that infection, and you can understand how sensible all those things will be. And yet that will lead into a system for buying and selling. 
You know, they're already talking about vaccine passports and without that kind of thing, you won't be able to travel. Well, it's going to get to the point that unless you take a particular mark, and it's not going to be the COVID thing, this is a bit a stepping stone. Unless you take this particular mark that's coming in your right hand or forehead, which is interesting, isn't it? Because there are the two places in the body that have these great temperature changes. It's great for powering some sort of um, device, transmitter, transponder, whatever. Now, whether it will be that or something else, whatever, it will be a system that unless you take this mark, you won't be able to buy or sell. Do you realize how much further we have been moved forward because of the COVID situation? The cash is just about to be phased out. I mean, they've not said it openly, but there have been all sorts of programs and documentaries and things saying, yeah, do we really need cash anymore? There was a program on the radio the other day saying, actually, do we really need cash anymore? Who really uses it? They're interviewing market traders who typically have only ever sold using cash. And they're saying, you know, would you start to use card machines? And some of them have said, well, no, we don't think we... And they tried them and they found actually their takings went up. And so everybody's been kind of moved gradually towards that idea that everything will be done electronically. But that means everything can be logged, everything can be tracked, everything can be traced, every transaction monitored. Yes, there is a conspiracy. But the conspiracy comes from the father of lies, or the devil. He's behind all of these things, moving the world in this direction, getting ready for this incredible leader that's going to step onto the world scene. He's going to do what no other leader's been able to do. He's going to bring about peace in the Middle East. This incredible turmoil that's gone that presidents and kings and prime ministers and politicians for centuries now have been trying to resolve. Well, he's going to come and he's going to solve the problem. And everybody's going to think he's wonderful. But three and a half years into this, he's going to turn on Israel. They're going to be forced to flee to the wilderness of Edom. This is all foretold in the Bible the place we call modern-day Jordan. And this is all in chapter 2 of Joel, just the, the embryonic, just the, the kind of the shoots of these things that are expounded elsewhere in Scripture. But as a result, we then seem to see the church, who by that time will be raptured, will be taken from this earth, will be in heaven. And we're then called to intercede on behalf of Israel. Israel then realize, they recognize that Jesus is their Messiah. And they'll repent. Whilst they're in the deepest part of their troubles they will cry out to God and they will realize that Jesus really is their Messiah they'll recognize all those scriptures that they don't understand they've not really kind of like Isaiah 53 and many others and they'll recognize who Jesus is and of course during that time Israel will be provided for and this seems to be analogous to the fulfillment of the feast of trumpets and the feast of atonement you know every one of the feasts of Israel have been prophetically fulfilled the first three at the time of the crucifixion, the burial of Jesus, and then the Feast of First Fruits on the Day of Resurrection. Of course, the Feast of Harvest was Pentecost. But the last three have yet to be fulfilled, and they seem to be mapped out here in the book of Joel. And then the third chapter, which is what we're going to be concluding with now, it speaks of this time of Armageddon. Everybody knows the word. Everybody knows the expression. But we're going to see a gathering of the nations together under the control of this coming world leader, with the express intent of destroying Israel. Because Israel are not going to comply. They're not going to give in to the things that are being pushed upon the rest of the world. As a result, Israel are going to cry out to their Messiah from their place of hiding somewhere in the Jordanian desert. And that's going to lead to Jesus coming back 
You know, the reason for the second coming is for Jesus to come back and deliver his people Israel, who Isaiah tells us at that time will be about to perish. But Jesus will step in. Israel's enemies, enemies are going to be destroyed. And then Jesus will establish his throne and kingdom. And the whole of that is given to us in these three chapters of Joel. It's a staggering prophetic book. Again, the Feast of Tabernacles as Jesus returns the tabernacle to dwell among us. Now, we started last week, not going to go through the first two verses in detail. Obviously, we did the whole of last week on those two verses, but let's just read them again. For behold, in those days and at that time, notice again, when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem. Now, it began, started happening from 1867 onwards as Israel were granted the opportunity to start buying up land that had been the Ottoman Turks up until that point. And of course, that was the year that Mark Twain visited the land and declared it barren and so on and wrote about it just as Deuteronomy prophesied. It was also the year that Charles Warren uncovered the old city of Jerusalem. And from that point, everything started moving forward. And of course, we get to 50 years on from that to 1917 and the Balfour Declaration. And then we get on to, again, the 1948 when Israel moved back into the land, 1967, again, the 100 years after 1867 when all, all that began, and Israel got Jerusalem back again. And God has done exactly what he said through Joel he would do, bring the captivity of Israel back to the land as one nation, as one people. And God says, verse 2 here, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat and will plead with them there for my people. Now that's not God entering to some sort of bargaining. God doesn't need to do that. God is going to express his opinion about what they have done. And it says here, for my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. Israel have been forced to flee time and time again. They've never found a place really where they've been safe, where they've been welcome. And there is no other historical group of people that you can look at in the world that have had a history like Israel and yet have remained an identifiable national people. I mean, you speak of the Hittites, or the Amorites, the Amalekites, the Philistines. They've all been lost in the sands of time. But Israel have survived even though they've been scattered around the world. And God says he's going to bring judgment on the world because of these things and the fact that they have parted his land. And we saw last week in detail just how those things have happened. Now, the Valley of Jehoshaphat is the Jezreel Valley. It's also known as, and you and I typically would know it as, Armageddon. I want to just turn to the book of Revelation because in chapter 16, we find there there are bowls of wrath. And each one of those bowls of wrath speaks of judgment. In fact, we saw already in our study going through in the book of Revelation, it depicts this seven-year period of history that is yet future, that's coming. And it's going to begin the first three and a half years, there'll be seven seals. There's a scroll. And as this scroll is open, the seals are kind of peeled off it. And with every peeling of a, of a, of a seal, something takes place. That will be followed by the, the trumpet judgments. And we've already referred to some of these things. That's followed by seven thunders that each reveal something new. And then finally, these seven vials or seven bowls of wrath are poured out. And as John is seeing this in vision form, real things are taking place on the earth. And so we're going to jump into Revelation 16 verse 12. And it says, And the sixth angel poured out his vial or bowl of wrath upon the great river Euphrates. And the waters thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. Now, 
There's interesting ideas behind all of this. But because of the the warming. Now, we talk about global warming, and the world gets very excited about these things, and Greta has her little say, and everybody else, you know. But there is going to come a time during the book of Revelation when there really will be global warming. The world is going to heat up, and the Bible speaks of this time coming. Now, if that happens, what that's going to do is cause things like the ice caps on places like Mount Ararat in Turkey to melt. Now, initially, that's going to cause a lot of flooding, but once that's over, the river will dry up, because the source of water will be gone. So these things that the Bible speaks of, they're not fanciful. There's there's an awful lot. As you start to look at the science behind it, you start to see how probable these things are. And it speaks here of this great river Euphrates that comes from, say, Mount Ararat in Turkey, and it flows down through past uh, or through modern-day Iraq, right by the side of where Babylon, the city of Babylon is, and so on. But it says that this is going to be dried up, that the kings of the east might be prepared. Now, who are these kings of the East? Now, most scholars seem to agree that they're going to be the communist nations. China, North Korea, etc. And that may be the case, as other scholars argue, that simply, in reference to the East, it's going to be Babylon and that region that will be coming. But either way, they will come at the request of Antichrist to fight against what they perceive to be their common enemy. And it says, And I saw three unclean spirits... Like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. There's going to be this satanic trinity. There'll be Satan in the role of God the Father, effectively. There'll be Antichrist, who will be like Jesus, in a sense. And then there's going to be this false prophet, this individual, this religious leader, that's going to help to reunite all world religions together. And these three, we're told that out of the mouth, there comes these, these demonic frogs, effectively. He says, uh, for they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them together to that great day of God Almighty. So the purpose of these demonic spirits is to deceive the nations, to bring them together in this fight that Antichrist will be leading against Israel. Now, actually, back in 1 Kings 22, there's an example there of a battle that was going on. And God allowed this spirit to go and speak through one of the mouths of the so-called prophets to say that everything will be fine. We can go out to battle and we'll win and led the whole nation into this disaster, effectively. So we've seen types of these things already. This is still a future for us. Now, Israel, by this point, will be down... Right down the bottom here, you see the start of the bottom, Petra. This is rock city in uh, what was the kingdom of Edom. Today's modern-day Jordan. That's where Israel will flee during this time. So I want to read to you from the book of Daniel. Why, why is the kingdom of Edom, why is this place going to be where Israel will flee? Well, back in Daniel, if you remember when we studied not too long ago, it said this, And at the time of the end, shall the king of the south push against him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships, and he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. And he shall enter also the glorious land, that's speaking of Israel. And many countries shall be overthrown. And this is speaking of antichrists to come. But these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom, Moab, and the chief of the children of Ammon. For he shall stretch forth his hand also upon the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. So all the other nations are going to be caught up. But those three, Edom, Moab, and Ammon, are all going to be spared. They're not going to come under the control of Antichrist. And so it's to Edom that Israel will flee. It will be a place of refuge and safety during this really difficult time for them. 
Now, back into Revelation 16, 15, it says, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Now, who is it that's being addressed here? Who is it that the scripture identifies as those who are watching? Well, I think this could well be the church. And we haven't got time to go into this in detail. If you want to look at this in more detail, the notes from when we studied Revelation are all on the web. You can go through and you can read the verse-by-verse commentary that's there for it. But I think it's a wake-up call. Blessed is he that watches and keeps his garments. You know, we've already seen the church, I believe, alluded to in the book of Joel. The church will play a part in this. Not on earth will be in heaven by that point. But we'll still have a part to play. And then verse 16 goes on. And he gathered them together, this is the nations, into a place called in the Hebrew tongue, Ha-Megeddon. Okay, it's made up of, of two words. It's a very, very familiar term. Of course, it's linked to the end of the world. You know, not normally associated with a specific place when the world uses it. But it comes from these two Hebrew words, Ha, meaning mountain, and Megiddo. Okay, which is literally a rendezvous or a place of crowds is what the word Megiddo actually means, which is very fitting. Look at it on the map, of course, you look at in the land of Israel, and this place, Megiddo, is there. It's a kind of, it's at a crossroads, but it's in a valley. You can see, and again, looking at Israel, up there on the uh, northwest coast of Israel, effectively, or almost from there, from the, the bottom of Mount Carmel, stretching all the way down. Actually, the valley goes all the way down. The Jezreel Valley goes all the way down to not far outside Jerusalem. That's a, a picture from Nazareth looking across toward the Mediterranean Sea. And you see the flat plain. It's a great staging area, which is exactly what it's going to be. The, the Megiddo itself was this fortified hilltop area that Solomon had had places there and many others. And there's lots of references in Scripture um, to this place and where it's appeared. In fact, we know that back in the book of Judges, Jabin was there, had 900 chariots that were overwhelmed at this place. Gideon's 300 men defeated the Midianites here uh, and the Amalekites and the children of the east. Samson triumphed over the Philistines this place. Barak and Deborah were defeated here. Uh, Caesarea... Uh, Saul was slain by the Philistines and so on. Uh, and Ahaziah was slain by the arrows of Jehu here. And then Pharaoh Necho also killed King Josiah. So there's lots of references historically in the Bible to this place. But these are all kind of like little dress rehearsals of what's going to happen and what's coming. So back into verse 2 again, just to look at what we were told. God says he was going to gather all nations to this place. They're all going to come to this huge staging area. And it's a big, big 200 miles uh, of valley. The nations of the world, these combined armies are going to be brought together. In verse 3 we go on, And they have cast lots for my people, and have given a boy for a harlot, and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. It speaks of the way the nations have treated Israel. And by the way, Matthew 25. Are you familiar with the passage where Jesus says, you know, as you've done to the least of these, my brethren? That's all about the nations. The way the nations have treated Israel. It's, you know, people use it in different contexts, but Jesus specifically, and Matthew's account is given us that that's all about the way the nations have treated Israel. Verse four. Yea, and what have we to do? What have you to do with me, O Tyre and Zidon and all the coasts of Palestine? Interesting reference, by the way, Palestine. Literally the Philistines. That was the area of the Philistines. That's where the name came from. It was actually Emperor, Emperor Hadrian that renamed the land Palestina. It was, it was a, they, after Israel were forced out of the land, they renamed it Palestine, effectively, or 
after Israel's enemies. There was never a Palestinian people, unless, of course, you refer to the Philistines who are long gone. The Palestinian orchestra used to be a Jewish orchestra. The Palestinian Post was a Jewish newspaper. Somehow the world has been fed this lie that there's this Palestinian people that Israel have oppressed. It's all lies and propaganda. None of that's true. If you want to read a book that goes through it in detail, I recommend Dave Hunt's book, Judgment Day. It goes through it in detail, speaking of how the Arab nations that were there and thereabouts were told to leave the land by their Arab nations were around about them. And then they weren't allowed back and they created the refugee problem and so on. So much of the problem has been man-made but not by Israel. But Israel have always been made to seem to be the aggressor. All the coast of Palestine, you will render me a recompense. And if you recompense me swiftly and speedily, I will return your recompense upon your own head. Because you have taken my silver and my gold and carried into your temples my goodly, pleasant things. You know, that's exactly what's happened. You know, people have taken the wealth of Israel and they've taken it for themselves. <clears throat> Verse 6, the children also of Judah and the children of Jerusalem. Have you sold unto the Grecians that you might remove them far from their border? Behold, I rise them out of the place whether you have sold them and will return your recompense upon your own head. And I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the children of Judah and they shall sell them to the Sabines, to a people far off, for the Lord has spoken it. So God's speaking of the way the nations have treated Israel, that's how they are going to be treated. Again, Matthew 25 is the reference that Jesus speaks specifically of this time. Now in the book of Daniel, Chapter 12, it says, And at that time, the time we're speaking of, shall Michael stand up with the great prince which stands for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. The time again, the time of the end is what's being referred to. <clears throat> now notice again, Michael is going to stand up. This is one of the angelic hosts that we are introduced to in Scripture. You know, Gabriel is always mentioned in Scripture as being involved in a assignment to do with announcing the Messiah. And Michael, the archangel, is always seen in a context of helping Israel, defending Israel. That's who he's going to be fighting for. And this time of trouble that has come is one of the most prevalent themes in the entire Bible. Jeremiah calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. In fact, in Jeremiah 30, we read this. Ask ye now and see whether a man does travail with child. Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in travail? Like, why does it look like the men are about to give birth? There's an expression of pain on their faces. And all faces are turned into paleness. Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble. That's where we have that reference from. Back into Daniel again. And at that time, thy people shall be delivered. Everyone that shall be found written in the book. You know, God promises to deliver Israel. It goes back to the promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we see it reiterated throughout the prophets throughout the Old Testament. Again in Jeremiah 30, it goes on, it says, For it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off thy neck, and I will burst thy bonds, and strangers shall no more serve themselves of him. The world won't be able to help themselves to Israel and treat them shamefully as they've done. 
But they told, but they shall serve the Lord their God. It speaks of Israel coming to that place of repentance and David their king, whom I shall raise up unto them. It speaks of this time of restoration. All the prophets are in agreement with these things. And this isn't just one individual that, that made some Nostradamus type prediction about what might happen. All the prophets, and they, most of these individuals never met each other. They lived hundreds of years apart, and yet they wrote with complete clarity on the same themes. Verse 9 goes on, Proclaim ye this among the Gentiles, prepare war, make up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near, let them come up. And then in what seems to be an incredible reverse of Isaiah 2 verse 4, it's almost as if God is poking fun at them. He says, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. In other words, you know, take your farming equipment and make weapons out of it if you can, if you think that's going to help you. And let the, the weak say, I am strong. I mean, he's saying the, the weak, those who are without strength, pretend you're strong. See if that's going to help you. You know, Psalm 2 is another analogous passage to this, where God mocks, laughs at the nations of the world. It's probably worth just reading that. Let me just read to you the opening of Psalm 2. Because again, God is doing exactly as we're seeing here, just taunting the nations for their arrogancy. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? You see, they're not just marching against Israel to destroy Israel. They're actually trying to march and destroy God's plan and purpose. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. What we're seeing here is the reverse of that. They're not going to get to do that. God is going to do the reverse. He that sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. And it goes on. And it speaks of that time when God will set his king upon his holy hill in Zion. So again, beat your plows, your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say I am strong. Assemble yourselves and come, all you heathen, and gather yourselves together round about. Thither cause thy mighty ones to come down, O Lord. Verse 12, let the heathen be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the heathen round about. God is going to get them all together in one place. Be in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Now, there's takes on this in Revelation. It picks off this theme and, and, this, and elaborates. We'll come to that in a second. Come, get you down, for the press is full. The idea is, again, of, of chopping down the, the grapes. You get the harvest ready, and then when it's ready, you stamp on the grapes, and you, you crush the grapes, and you get the juice out. And the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. That's the picture that's being painted of what God is going to do. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. That's another name that is now given to this place. For the day of the Lord, that expression repeatedly through the Old Testament, the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And then we read things that we're familiar with because we read in the New Testament of these ideas. Jesus spoke of it, Matthew 24. The sun and the moon shall be darkened and the stars shall withdraw their shining. The Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth shall shake. But the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. You see, God is going to come and deliver his people Israel. 
You know, a lot of people have, have a problem with this, and they think, well, but Israel aren't, aren't, aren't all that good. You know, why is it that God is going to favor them? Well, it's because God chose Israel to be the nation through whom he would bring the Messiah into this world. That the Messiah would be a blessing to all people. And God chose Israel for that task. God could have chosen any particular group, but he chose Abraham. And said, it will be your descendants that will be this clothing. Revelation 12 speaks of it. The clothing that allows this lineage to come down. The seed of the woman is the expression we find in Scripture. Coming all the way down from Eve, all the way down through history, ultimately to a, a young Jewish girl by the name of Mary, who gave birth to the Messiah. And also, God chose Israel to be the nation to whom he would reveal his plan. Scripture was written by the Jews, not by the Gentiles, apart from a very short bit by Nebuchadnezzar. And by the way, Dr. Luke, a lot of people say he was a Gentile. He wasn't. He was a Jew. A number of reasons we know that. All the Scripture is Jewish. It was given to us. Paul makes that point. That Scripture has been given to us by the Jews. So this is why God has a special place in his heart for this nation. Because they were called of all people to do a very specific work for the whole, for the benefit of the whole world. Verse 17 goes on. So shall you know that I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then shall Jerusalem be holy and there shall no strangers pass through her anymore. The, the expression there is not just strangers as in terms of people that are unfamiliar, but people that are antagonistic toward. Seems to be the idea that's used. Now, in the book of Zechariah, there's a little bit more explanation of this. It says, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. Now, just to make it clear that what seems to be the order of events here is that Antichrist is going to assemble these armies of the world, these, of the nations of the world together in the Jezreel Valley. But Israel as a nation predominantly would have fled down to the, we believe the area of Petra in what is modern-day Jordan. And so the idea is a staging post. They start to go after them. Of course, they go through Jerusalem en route, and those that are still dwelling there, there will be some clearly from this text, they will be, well, as it says, houses rifled, the women ravished, half the city should go into captivity, and the rest of the people should not be cut off from the city. And they will be on their way down to destroy the nation, in hiding at that point. But Jesus is going to intervene. He's going to come back. And Isaiah makes the point that Jesus, as he returns to this place of Bozra, Petra, in Edom, Jordan, his garments are going to be soaked in blood, the blood of his enemies, as he comes back to bring his wrath upon them. By the way, there's a verse in Revelation 16, in the midst of all this, and it kind of pauses and says that God is just. So if anybody's thinking, well, it seems a bit harsh that God... No, no, you just got to think of all the innocent lives that have been destroyed by the work of the devil, the things that the devil has set up. 
All the greed. Uh, there's something I read the other day. In fact, we were going around went to Marla's school um, for Amita, who may be going there um, next year. And there was, a, there was a, a plaque on the wall, a big kind of picture on the wall of different facts and things. And it was some crazy statistic, like, uh, I think, uh, if I'm right in saying, I think nearly all, 75% of the world's wealth is owned by about 12, 13 people. So, yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was incredible. And you just think how immoral this world is. All the injustice that takes place in the world. This is what God is going to come and address. It's not just some trivial dispute over a bit of territory in the Middle East. It's much bigger than that. But Zechariah then goes on and speaks of what is also going to happen because the, the battle is going to take place down somewhere in, in the area of Bosra in Jordan. And then once Jesus defeated his enemies, we then read verse 4 of Zechariah, and his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. The king is coming to his city, to his capital, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave. There's going to be this earthquake in the midst thereof toward the east and towards the west. There's a fault line that runs right through this area, by the way. And there shall be a very great valley, and half the mountain shall remove toward the north and half toward the south. And you shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azel, and you shall flee like as you fled from before the earthquake in the days of Isaiah. speaks of a historical event. King of Judah, and the Lord my God shall come down, and all the saints with thee. That's an interesting expression, isn't it? All the saints with thee. Revelation 19 adds to this. It says, and the armies which were in heaven, that's the saints, Followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. At this point, as Jesus returns, this is typically what we refer to as the second coming. Jesus is going to come back first to deliver Israel, to defeat Israel's enemies. He's then going to come to Jerusalem, put his feet on the Mount of Olives. There'll be this earthquake, but his armies, the heavenly armies that will be with him, are going to return. Jude 14 speaks about this. Zechariah, we just mentioned. The angels are coming with him. We know that, but also so will be the church returning with him at this point. Revelation 1 verse 7, it says, Behold, he comes with the clouds, and every eye will see him. And they also which pierced him, and all the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him, even so. Amen. Everybody's going to see him. The Jews, those that are responsible for crucifying Jesus, are going to wail. They're going to know that he was their Messiah. I like what Spurgeon said about this. He says, I gather from this expression that it will be a literal appearing, an actual sight. If the second advent was to be a spiritual manifestation, to be perceived by the minds of men, the phraseology would be, every mind shall perceive him. But it is not so. We read, every eye shall see him. Now the mind can behold the spiritual, but the eye can only see that which is distinctly material and visible. I just thought about that. It's going to be real. It's going to happen. You know, I got into a conversation with a leading theological um, individual in this country some years ago, and uh, I was challenging him over some things he'd said at a conference I'd been at. And, and it kind of, we, we'd gone round and round in circles, and he just concluded and he said, I suppose you think that Jesus is going to come back on a white horse. I went, yeah, I do. Because that's what the Bible says. And why wouldn't I believe it? Because every other prophecy that we've seen in Scripture has been fulfilled with incredible precision and detail. 
So why have I got any reason to doubt that the rest of those things that have not yet taken place will be fulfilled in the same manner? Maybe I don't understand the mechanics of how it will happen, but I don't need to. God is God. Revelation 19 verse 11 goes on and says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. Well, the world could do with a bit of that, couldn't it? Imagine a world leader that is faithful and that is true. And in righteousness, he does judge and make war. In righteousness. That means everything he does is right. Back into Revelation 14, 18, and it says, Another angel came out from the altar, which had the power of a fire, and cried with a loud cry to him. They had the sharp sickle, saying, you know, I was talking earlier about the grapes, and the, thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. Again, there's a reference here to Isaiah 63, speaks of these things. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city and blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. Now, you may not be familiar with that measurement, but just to kind of put this into perspective... These are the details that were given. Again, when you start to piece all this together, it's incredible because the distance between Megiddo and Petra is 1,600 furlongs. It's 180 miles. That's the distance. It's exactly the distance from where they start this, this campaign, coming down to where Israel will be. The whole area is going to be a bloodbath as the Lord comes and destroys Israel's enemies. And we're told in Revelation 19.15, And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Again, think of Psalm 2 we mentioned earlier. And he treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. The world is very quick to speak irreverently about spiritual things. They joke about God, they speak as if God can't hear and God doesn't care, that they can act with complete impunity. The governments make decisions totally with disregard to God's word and God's laws. The media give no regard to it whatsoever and scoff and mock. Our education system is set up in such a way as to present these kind of quaint historical stories which are lovely for children, but really they're not true. And God patiently waits. Peter said that the Lord is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. But there will come a day that God will bring his judgment upon the earth. And we're told that he will destroy the nations by the words of his mouth. They're going to be confounded before him. Again, Psalm 2 we've already mentioned. Revelation 19.16 says, And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Just as an aside, notice that those words are in capital letters there. It's quite interesting. There's 95 Greek manuscripts from which the book of Revelation has been translated into English. So there's 95 manuscript copies. Not all of them are complete, but every single one of them had these words in capitals. It's just kind of like as if to make a statement that he really is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. 
Revelation 19:17 says, And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God. It's kind of pretty gruesome. I'm, I'm sorry on a Sunday before you're going to go home and have your nice lunch to, to present this to you. But basically, the birds are going to come, and they're going to start picking on the flesh of those that are left there. That you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. Back into Joel, verse 18. And it shall come to pass in that day, that the mountains shall drop down new wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the rivers of Judah shall flow with waters, and a fountain shall come forth of the house of the Lord, and shall water the valley of Shittim. Now that's the area down towards the Dead Sea. And elsewhere we're told that what seems to be occurring because of this earthquake that's going to occur in Jerusalem, that there's going to be a river that's going to flow down, feeding into the Dead Sea. It's no longer going to be just this barren place that nothing grows, nothing lives in the Dead Sea, because obviously you know it's so full of salt. And it's going to spring into life. And there's going to be another river that's going to go the other way back out towards the Mediterranean. We're specifically told here that Egypt shall be, shall be a desolation and Edom shall be a desolate wilderness for the violence against the children of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. He's speaking again of not just what Egypt did at the time of the Exodus, the way they were trying to kill the male children of the land, but throughout their history so on. And then, of course, Edom, the way they have been. We'll, we'll look at that in detail when we get to the book of Obadiah as we carry on journeying through the Minor Prophets. But we conclude, But Judah shall dwell forever, and Jerusalem from generation to generation. For I will cleanse their blood, that I have not cleansed, for the Lord dwelleth in Zion. And it brings it to a conclusion that the Lord will finally be in their midst. The Lord will tabernacle amongst them. So Joel gives us the outline. I've put a little more detail into that this morning because the other prophets give us so much more information of what is coming. The real lesson here is that God is in complete control. Joel is seemingly the earliest of all the writing prophets, as we've said. And he gives us this incredible framework of God's plan from the beginning of the nation of Israel through their history and this incredible climactic conclusion that is yet to come. But the one thing we see through all of that is that God is faithful. God keeps the promises that he made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And if God keeps those promises, then God will keep every promise he's made. The promise he's made to you and I, to never leave us or forsake us. God is in complete control. And we just need to let the world know. And we may not be able to tell the whole world, but we can tell our neighbours, we can tell members of our family. We can encourage them just to consider these things. There are so many people that are going to get caught up in this. And we have an opportunity Whilst the Lord is tarrying, whilst the Lord is being patient, being long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, we have a window of opportunity to preach the gospel, to say that even though this is coming, and rightly so, and God is just in bringing these judgments, there's a way of escape. Just as Jesus said to the disciples in the Gospel of Luke, pray that you be counted worthy to escape all these things. 
and to stand before the Son of Man. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for this incredible book of prophecy that just gives us the outline of your plan. Father, we thank you that through the other prophets we get greater clarity and understanding of what is to come. And how, Father, we meet here this morning, Lord, at the edge of all of these things. Lord, never have we been at such a time where we can see so many of these things being fulfilled before our eyes. The hostilities toward Israel are increasing. Those round about her, Lord, are actively looking for ways to destroy her. Oh, we pray, Father, that you would wake up your church, that we would intercede, we would pray for your people Israel, to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, as the Bible says we should. But pray too, Lord, that you would give us opportunities to share with others that your word is not some work of fiction. These aren't just some ramblings, religious writings, but Lord, these are statements of what is to come. And Lord, as we've seen so many of your prophecies fulfilled, we can have confidence knowing that these things too will come to pass. Lord, give us a greater confidence and love for your word and Lord, a greater reverence for you. We ask all these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.